You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my extreme pleasure to welcome our guest today, Will Marshall. He's the co-founder and CEO of Planet Labs, and he's a real, live rocket scientist. Prior to Planet Labs, Will was a scientist at NASA, where he worked on a planetary bus, the Lunar Orbiter, and did work trying to remediate space debris. He received his PhD in physics from Oxford, and he's here today to share his experience launching a company, as well as launching tiny satellites called Doves that take photos of the entire Earth every single day. Please join me in welcoming Will Marshall. Thanks, guys. Can everyone hear me okay? Great. Um, so. I wanted, what, I, what I wanted to talk to you guys about today was a little bit about what we do at Planet Labs and why, and a little bit of some of the lessons that I've learned um, on this entrepreneurial journey, if you like, uh, for others that are interested in taking sim similar journeys. I, I hope it will be useful, but much of it will be from my personal perspective, so take it with a, that grain of salt. I want to start us here. This is called the Earth. Uh, you may have seen it before. Um, you may have seen it before in particular because of this rather iconic image that the Apollo 17 astronauts took when they were hurtling around the moon in 1972. It was the full, first full-frame image of the entire planet when it was fully sunlit. And it's credited with having uh, started uh, the Green Movement, but not so much because we didn't know we were living on a planet before then, um, or at least most people thought we did, um, it is the case, though, that it hadn't really gone into the public consciousness. And this changed a lot of people's thinking, this particular photograph, because they saw the thin shell of the atmosphere, they th saw the Earth in the vastness of space, and made people realize that we've got to take care of this beautiful planet that we're on. But beautiful as this picture is, um, it's a little bit lacking. It's lacking because it's static, and the Earth is constantly changing as uh, we, uh, in particular, affect the planet as human beings. Um, and what one would e ideally like is much more high-cadence uh, imagery, high-frequency imagery of the planet. So satellite imagery today is typically old. Uh, the, the, the imagery you find online is typically several years old. Um, so we did a thought experiment. What would it be like if we could take a high-resolution image of every single point on the Earth's surface every single day? What could we do with that data? We were thinking, well, we could track deforestation. We could see that as it happens. Rather than waking up at the end of the year and realizing there's a bloody great hole in the Amazon again, we could catch people in the act, right, um, as the logging takes place over many weeks. We could do the same for fisheries. Uh, we could see disasters, like the situation happening in Nepal right now, and help people quickly get the imagery they need to figure out how to respond to those situations. Same with floods, fires, earthquakes. Uh, well, that is an earthquake. Other, other disasters as well. We'd also be able to help people improve agricultural yield because with satellite da data, you can tell uh, biomass in every single pixel. And so we could help people improve agriculture around the world. And then there are a lot of commercial applications. For example, having up-to-date imagery is something that people want on their consumer mapping products, and so everyone wants that on their phone. Instead of an image several years old, they want the image from recently. And there's lots of financial applications as well. And so me and my co-founders, who were at NASA at the time, left NASA to start a company to try and tackle that problem of trying to get to daily imaging of the planet. And so that was the mission we set out, image the whole Earth every single day, and provide universal access to that imagery. And so roughly, what does that take? It takes a system like this. Um, we need about 150 satellites orbiting the Earth in a particular orbit. Uh, we need a system of 30 ground stations all around the world to receive the information down from those satellites. We need, of course, large numbers of uh, processors uh, in order to, uh, to digest and make that uh, information calibrated and geo-rectified onto the Earth's surface so it's useful for consumers. And then we thought about two ways of sort of provisioning that out to customers. One, via uh, sort of feed hoses to large enterprise users, 
um, say those consumer mapping clients that I was talking about, but also we wanted to get it out on a platform so that everyone could have access to it. So we have an open API where anyone can come and hack their own apps on our imagery on our servers. So that's roughly what we set out to do. Um, this little video is going to show you how it would work. So we put 150 satellites into a sun-synchronous plane. That's, they're all in the same plane. And they actually stay fixed. That plane stays fixed with respect to the sun, and the Earth rotates underneath it. Each one is pointing down and taking a strip of imagery along the ground. And then by the time the next one comes along, the Earth has rotated just the width of the image so that it, it stripes the part just next to it. It ends up being like a line scanner for the planet. So we, basically, the Earth does the legwork, and um, we just stay put and let the Earth rotate underneath it and slowly scan it. A line scanner for the planet. This is two of our satellites um, being deployed from the International Space Station. It gives you a bit of a sense of scale of how small our satellites are uh, versus the solar arrays of the space station. Um, and what I'm going to tell you a little bit is about, is that, about what it took to get there and some of the, the journey first. So we started this in our garage as uh, Silicon Valley startups are wont to do. Um, uh, but I think we were the first space startup to do that. We literally built our first satellite in our garage. Um, and that wasn't the only lesson we learned from Silicon Valley. We took an approach of a rapid iteration we call Agile Aerospace. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, we tried to just um, take things out into the field and test them. We would take our satellites out. Um, we'd fire them in planes over our ground stations to check that they worked. Have, have, have the radio tests along across the valley from here to basically the uh, uh, Lick Observatory. We'd send somebody up there and try and do a link and make sure everything worked. So we took this sort of more hands-on and testing approach, which is quite different from uh, the aerospace sector, which takes a very hardcore analytical approach to uh, finding uh, problems and risks to the satellite design. So we started in our garage, um, and that was uh, just over three years ago, three and a half uh, years ago, and we, um, um, actually the founders of our company, we all met at the United Nations uh, at a conference um, that was looking at how to use satellites to help humanity. How can we bring them to help people in developing countries, help stop disasters, things like that. And so this in many ways has been the, the uniting theme throughout our career. So we've known each other for about 15 years before um, uh, starting this company. And so we were long-term friends and cared about this overarching mission. So what was standing in our way? The first thing that was standing in our way was that satellites looked like this. Um, you see these people. Um, they're rather big, the satellites. Either that or the people are very small. Um, so these satellites weigh about six tons. This is a Landsat satellite. Um, it was launched last year by NASA. This is what a traditional Earth imaging satellite looks like. Um, so it weighs six tons. Uh, it's uh, four by four by six meters. It um, cost uh, $855 million. It was launched on a single rocket. Um, and satellites like this have done a tremendous service in helping us to understand the planet uh, so far. Um, this, is, this sort of satellite has given us reliable data over the last 40 years. But if you want to put up 150 satellites, this model doesn't really work. Uh, because, well, at least not unless you have a gigantic budget. But that doesn't really represent the forefront of satellite technology, at least small satellite technology, which really was represented uh, prior to us, at least, um, by these folks at Surrey Satellites, um, in, at, who are actually from the UK. And uh, these are uh, 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 some of their satellites that they build. A rapid eye is the constellation of satellites that they built here, shown. Um, and these satellites are about 100 kilograms and uh, commensurately less uh, uh, money. Um, only say, $30 million or $40 million. But even that, for us, was not going to work. We needed to put up 150 of these guys, and even by that standard, it was going to be billions of dollars and not something we could get venture capital funded, let alone try and start out of our own pockets, which is what we wanted to do. So what we did was make satellites much smaller. And this is actually um, one of our satellites under construction by one of our engineers to give you a bit of a sense of scale. So our satellites, this is actually one of them what it looks like. Um, one of the dominant features you can see is actually our, we have an artist in residence who paints all of our satellites. <laughs> um, and this is actually the, the top side of the solar array. So you can't see the main solar array. Obviously, that has to have um, the solar cells on it. But uh, the artist gets to 
to paint the other parts, which is kind of cool. But what's inside that? So we've miniaturized a, a massive amount of technology into this little volume. These satellites are 10 by 10 by 30 centimeters. They use what's called the CubeSat form factor, which actually Stanford uh, engineers were involved with, with pioneering uh, in the late 90s. It's basically a standard form factor of size of a satellite. Um, and launch providers got used to this uh, form factor uh, to give more, uh, which enabled us to get more access to space, basically. But inside that is, first and foremost, the largest telescope we could possibly fit into that volume. Um, so, uh, you know, the front two-thirds of the satellite is essentially the telescope, uh, which is the optics that you need to get reasonable resolution imagery of the ground from four or 500 kilometers up, which is where we're orbiting. Then we have a camera system at the back, um, which that telescope feeds to. Um, and on our latest generation, it's a, a 29 megapixel uh, camera. But in addition to that, that, that's only really just the beginning. Um, what one has to have is obviously the power system, so the batteries and the uh, solar power to keep them charged. Um, we have to have an attitude determination system. Uh, so that's the system that figures out where the satellite is and where it's pointing. So we have a GPS um, uh, antenna that picks up that, and actually GPS works in space. You might question whether it would or not, but it does. Um, we're that much lower than the GPS satellites, so it still works. Um, and we have a star camera, which looks out up whilst the main camera is looking down and takes pictures of the star field and then automatically recognizes constellations and then adds metadata to our main image to say, you were pointed this way when you took that image. So we have a timestamp. The GPS stamp says where it's at in the orbit. And then this star camera stamp, if you like, says which way are we pointing at the time. There's a lot of other sensors in here. There's a 3-axis accelerometer, 3-axis rate gyro, 3-axis magnetometer. These all feed into a Kármán filter to, to spit out the satellite position and attitude uh, 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 state. Then we have a system of attitude control, so that's what, what then says, well, we now know where we're pointing, now we need to point somewhere else, what the ground, say, if we're pointing up or what have you. Um, and so we have two systems of attitude control. One is a system of reaction wheels. So these are little brushless DC motors, essentially, um, that um, uh, uh, were uh, uh, put in, 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 in all three axes. And if you spin them one way, then the satellite has to spin the other way to conserve momentum. And so we can turn the satellite round just by turning on these motors. We have an independent other system of attitude control, which is using magnetorca coils. So these are little, little just literally cop, uh, wire, uh, 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 a system of copper wire that we put through a little ma um, uh, current, which creates a little B field, uh, which reacts against the Earth's really small magnetic field and gives just enough torque to turn our satellites around as well. So we have two independent means of turning our satellites around. One is completely simple, that, that magnetorca coil, and very uh, robust, um, but it's a little bit slower. And so when we're turning, for example, to point at our ground station to maximize the gain of our radio antenna, we use our reaction wheels. But for most of the time, we can use our magnetorca coils. Also in there, we have a processor. We actually have three processors. We have an FPGA, which does the initial compression of the imagery. Uh, we have a full-up um, uh, x86 um, processor running Ubuntu. Um, uh, and then we've also got an ARM processor that does a lot of the light work um, scheduling of the, uh, of the satellite operations. And so actually, despite being some of the smallest satellites ever, um, they are some of the most capable satellites ever in terms of the compute power on board. Uh, we've got more memory and processing power than a lot of other satellites, if not all of them. Um, just because we use the latest technology and stuff it in, and we take a slightly higher risk approach, uh, which I'll be talking more about. Then we have a ra radio systems to send down the data. So um, we have uh, three radios on board, all of which we developed in-house, uh, because the cheapest radio we could find that would do the job was larger than our satellite and cost about a million dollars. So it was out of scope on two axis, axes. Um, so we build our own radio in-house. Um, that we have, it has three channels, a UHF channel, um, which does the command and control of the satellite, um, uh, an S-band, which is where we send the data up, and an X-band, which is 8.3 gigahertz, uh, to send the data down. Um, we can send our data down at about 40 megabits a second, down to our ground stations that are around the world, and I'll show you a little bit what the ground stations look like in a minute as well. 
So that's what the satellite looks like. Um, and as I mentioned, we take this sort of agile approach. And what I mean by that is we constantly put in the latest technology. So in the, between the last two, the one we just launched um, about a month ago today, um, where we launched 14 satellites. And we always put a tech demo satellite on, testing our next generation technology. And then we put a fleet of ones that we know work. Right? And then if that one works, then we'll just produce loads of those for the next batch. So the tech demo one that we had on this one, for example, had double the field of view on the telescope. We had we'd gone up 3x in the number of pixels on the camera. We had doubled the hard drive space on that satellite. We had increased the radio speed. We had put new sensors in that helped us to do better attitude control, sun sensors, basically. And so we keep on iterating the technology. We call this strapping space to Moore's law. Um, you know, basically trying to leverage the billions of dollars that have gone into consumer electronics and stuff them into our satellites. Um, and although that seems pretty obvious, that's not really what the space industry has been doing uh, 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 until now. Um, it, it might be obvious to you and I, but it's not what's been going on. So basically, um, uh, there's traditionally you can only put something into space if it has already been tested in space, which leads to this sort of chicken and an egg, then everything is antiquated. Um, and there's very long design life cycles for these things. So they want them to last a long time, so they want reliable technology. And they design them over many, many years. So what ends up happening is that you end up launching antiquated technology. Um, so the processors on the latest mission on Mars is, has a 33 megahertz processor and a 2 megapixel camera. Because 20 years ago, that was really hot shit. Uh, but, but unfortunately, I mean, you can't even find a 33 megahertz processor to go and stick in a satellite. I, I, they have to keep their own lines of you know, processors going to, to keep that stuff going. So we strap our satellites to Moore's Law. And, and then we really also do another thing that's quite equally important, I think, uh, to keep our satellites agile. We keep on uploading new code. Again, pretty obvious to computer programmers uh, down here on terra firma. But in the aerospace sector, uh, there was, there's always hesitation because you could put up new code and it could send the satellite into a spin and there goes a billion dollars, right? So people are scared about doing that. And at NASA, we would take, typically take about a year for us to get new code uploaded to our uh, satellites. So we just upload new code to our satellites all the time. We, we normally, we've had, got a couple going that we are more experimental with and if it works, we just you know, copy it across the whole fleet. So we take an agile approach to our software development as well. Um, so that's that, really. Um, so we take that's Agile Aerospace. Then we had to figure out how to manufacture them at scale. And I don't mean scale like you know iPhones or whatever, but, but hundreds uh, is the sort of scale that we need to build satellites in. Um, and we figured out how to do that. And that meant redesigning the satellite for manufacturability so that everything was plugged together like uh, ribbon cables rather than us wiring it all together and three-axis milled parts rather than five-axis milled parts so that we could have a shorter timeline to get the iterations in and um, things like that. Uh, so we redesigned them to be able to build them in, in large numbers. So in the aerospace sector, typically it takes the, the, the fastest people develop a satellite is a year or so. Um, and we can do it orders of magnitude better than that. I'm not going to tell you the specifics. Um, now, um, then of course we had to get rides into space. Um, in fact, uh, when we were in our garage, we put our first deposit on a launch vehicle um, with our pocket money, so to speak. And, uh, but when we were getting towards the bigger payments, that wasn't going to work. <laughs> um, and that's when we went and asked Steve Jervison, like, who I guess helps to sponsor this series, um, or DFJ does, um, uh, to give us some more serious dollars. Um, because in particular, we needed more serious dollars for uh, these things. Uh, rockets are expensive, it turns out. Um, and we needed to get our satellites up. So we've actually had nine launches to date, um, eight of which were successful. I'll tell you about the one that wasn't in a, in a bit. Um, so we've, and these were over the last two years. So we've roughly had a quarterly cadence of launches to test our technology and keep on iterating it. Um, and so every time we have that new generation of satellite, we put it up. But we have also been launching these fleets of satellites. So we've now launched 87 successfully into space on rockets like this. This is a Falcon 9 rocket that launched a month ago. Um, but we launch on anyone's rockets. We, um, we will stick our satellites in any nook and cranny that is available. Um, and we've launched on Russian rockets, Soyuz, Nepa. We're, we're launching this year also on um, a Japanese rocket, on an Indian rocket. Wherever there's space, we'll go. Um, 
excuse the pun. Um, so, and this is just to show you a little video. This is a, of this is one of the advantages of going by the International Space Station. You can get the astronauts to take these nice videos out the window. Um, I guess they've got nothing better to do. Um, and uh, so, so we like seeing this. There's a sort of flash at the end, which is kind of fun when it glints in the sun. Uh, I thought we, we could have planned that, you know. Um, uh, here's, here's some of the latest ones that just came out. I put these, this is a little just animated GIF of them coming out of the space station. Just for shits and giggles here. Um, okay, so then we have to get the data down. Uh, so we have a system of ground stations around the world. We've got about a dozen of these. So th inside that is a five-meter parabolic dish antenna, which points at the satellite as it goes ahead and gets the data down. Um, and the satellite at the same time points at the ground station to maximize gain on the little antenna that we have on the front flap that perhaps um, uh, you saw. Uh, the artist in residence evidently got to these guys as well, as you can see. Um, he goes around the world. This one just gave birth. We've got another one next to it now. Uh, we actually need three ground stations in each site, roughly speaking, um, because there's so many satellites in the sky as they pass across. There's actually th three or four satellites in the sky, so we need three at each location uh, picking up the data. So that's obviously how we get the data down. Um, so then what? Well, then we get things like this. Um, this is uh, one of the first images from the wider field of view telescope that I was just mentioning. We just launched uh, a month ago. Um, and um, so this image is about 20 by 15 kilometers in size. Um, the, the pixel size is about three meters on the ground. Um, so we can see objects that are about five meters across. Um, you can see a canopy of, if we zoom in, you'll see, we'll see a canopy of trees. You'll see just about, you can see large vehicles on roads, but you can't see people. Um, and in fact, we think that's a strategic advantage. We don't want to get into privacy areas. And it's, it's quite difficult to be able to detect a, a person's face from space, uh, it turns out. But um, we wouldn't want to do that even if we could. Um, and uh, so we get images like this. I'll show you a few more. Um, this is Beijing Airport. Um, this is some area in Tibet, I guess. Um, uh, this is when we zoom in. This is an area also in China, in Yunnan. Um, again, when we zoom in, you can just about see the vehicles on that road there. Um, this is an area in Texas. Again, we can zoom in. Uh, the other day, I was looking out um, for, uh, to see e where Elon's building his... Um, Tesla Gigafactory, just to see if we've got any pictures of there. Just for shits and giggles, I'm trying to tease him or something. Um, and we did indeed get that his, uh, uh, over a month or so interval, him build this building, <laughs> if you see that. <laughs> so I sent that to him, and he said, oh, there's lots more coming. <laughs> anyway, so even billionaires can't hide from our, um, their, their secret uh, facilities from, from our steely eyes. Okay, so what I wanted to do is just show a few more pictures on the web here, if I can do that. Um, did you say it's... Oh, yeah, great. So the real key thing that matters um, here is change. Because what does daily imaging of the whole planet do? It means you can see changes as they happen around the planet. And so here are two images um, uh, w taken 24 hours apart. Uh, and, and um, as I slide this back and forth, you can obviously see the changes. The most obvious thing being that fire, right, in the top right there. Um, but actually, if you look at this field here, if you can see my mouse there, and this field down here, you can see that they've been uh, harvested or tilled or something in that, in that period. Every single picture we get down, when we put it on the Earth's surface, to the latest imagery that has been taken, we see changes. People have built a building. People have removed a tree. People have harvested a field. The earth is changing. It's constantly changing. We think of it as this static thing because that's what we've had access to, static imagery um, that's old. When we have more higher cadence imagery, we see these changes. Um, this is one that we show to people that might be interested in the more sort of monetary aspect of this is that, of course, we can see changes in, in, uh, in mines, in this case a gold mine in China, 
And we could therefore estimate the volumetric output of these mines. And of course, we can do that for every single mine around the whole world every single day. That's useful for people betting on markets, uh, say in this case the gold market, but we can also tell the output from every single crop uh, field around the world every day, like every soy field around the, day, around the world every day. That's useful for the farmers, of course. It's also useful for people in New York trying to make bets on markets. So there's lots of people interested in our data from that sort of reason. We can see construction projects, obviously. That's, this is a Landsat image on the left and our image on the right. Landsat is that satellite I showed you earlier. Ours is slightly higher resolution, even though they're much, much smaller satellites um, um, uh, for various reasons. Um, so the, the drought in California, we can see these reservoir le levels. Again, the thing to think about is the fact that we can see this around the whole world every day. So every single reservoir, we can see the levels every day. Um, every single farmer's field, we can see the, the crop yield. Um, here, I've just, oh, maybe I need to sign in. Don't try and guess my password. <laughs> it's going to be tricky. Um, so, so yeah, we can uh, we can see these changes. So this, what we do here is this is um, our image, and if you look at this bridge down here, um, and the previous most recent image taken of this area somewhere in Texas, I don't know if it's Dallas or something. Um, again, uh, the bridge appearing, disappearing, appearing, disappearing, and of course we can just put an automated mask over that that finds these changes and figures out where the things are that have changed. In this case, obviously pulls out that bridge, but lots of other things that have changed. Um, somebody painted a roof over there, some people building, built some buildings over there, and we can do this around the whole world. Um, in fact, um, in China, it's like a bloody one giant construction site. So here, oh, maybe I should make this a bit bigger for you guys. Um, apologies. Um, so here again, um, that's the most recent other satellite image taken of that area, our image. Bang, 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 bang. You can see the massive amount of construction that's taken place there. And again, whoa, loads of changes. And as we zoom around China, this is just rendered on the fly in the browser, this particular, there's just more and more construction all over the place. Here's evidently another area where the Chinese have built another town overnight, you know. That's just what goes on in China. Um, and, um, and this is, so, um, and as we zoom out, you'll just get a sense for, um, if this is all loading. So these are now all of our images in strips, and uh, we're slowly striving and covering the earth as we go around, and, and again, if I turn back on the, the change, change detection, you'll just start seeing all these changes um, whether it's because of agriculture or whether it's because of people have done something for that field. These are these circular crop fields, um, you know, all around, all around the world, and we see these changes as they're taking place. Obviously, there's a lot of utility to that for a lot of different people. Um, and again, our goal is to put this data out there so that people can build their own apps on top of that, and maybe this says, you know, you, 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 you want your fire detection app uh, while well, you find red pixels and then alert fire departments of uh, your your of the lat long of that fire, or if you're uh, somebody doing news, uh, you you find the floods and uh, fires and earthquakes or whatever in Pakistan, if that's your in area of interest, um, or missing planes. Um, you know, you see these things, and you could maybe set up alerts to pull out that information to get the information that you need uh, for whatever you're trying to do in the world. So with that, I'm just going to talk about some of the challenges um, with, of building uh, and launching satellites. Here's one of them. Um, it's called Rockets Can Explode. This is actually an amateur video of the one rocket that didn't work that we have put our satellites on. It's a little bit shaky, but I, I think it captures some of the fascination with this uh, particular launch. So it gets up a little bit and then doesn't do so well above. It's about higher. The delay in the sound, you can see here. point is not going so well. Wait a few seconds. 
Um, so, that's one of the challenges we face. Let me come back to the, um, that's one of the challenges. Uh, satellite uh, launches um, can, um, is that going to come back up? Excellent, yeah. Uh, launches can be delayed quite often and sometimes explode like that. We had 26 satellites on that particular launch vehicle that exploded into smithereens um, that day. We put a lot of effort into it. Um, that was annoying. Uh, but uh, luckily, we had had quite a few launches. We'd already had four launches that year. We were doing pretty well. We'd already launched more satellites in one year than anyone else in history. We were doing pretty well. And our strategy is put our satellites on lots of different launch vehicles. And if one blows up, it's not the end of the world. That's part of the advantage of having our satellites be smaller and put on more regular launches, is that we don't have one big $1 billion satellite, and if it explodes, that really is the end of the world. Um, so, so that happens, uh, and I just wanted to talk about some of the challenges only because I thought it might be useful. Um, we obviously, uh, one of the key risk areas we weren't sure about as we started the company was, were we going to be able to get the regulatory approval to launch these satellites um, and operate these satellites in space? Um, one thing, if you're Boeing and and uh, building this billion dollar satellite and you can pay you know, tens of millions of dollars to some lawyers in DC or whatever to lobby to get some approvals or whatever that goes on. You know? And we weren't sure as a small startup how we were going to be treated and how it was going to work. Um, but luckily, uh, the, the, the good news there is that we really did manage to get all the licenses and approvals. Uh, we have to get three kinds of licenses for our satellites, the NOAA licenses to take images of the Earth. We have to get FCC licenses and ITU licenses to broadcast in this, these particular radio channels to ensure we don't interfere with other satellites um, uh, in terms of uh, the, the, the RF uh, frequencies. And, and uh, we also get, have to get State Department approval to send the satellites abroad for launch when we're sending them abroad for launch because State Department considers them munitions. Well, when they, if you think about that rocket, maybe that's true. Although I, we can call our satellites doves, so we don't think of them as munitions at all. We, we think of them as having a peaceful mission, but there we go. Um, Actually, uh, there's a fun story about the doves. Uh, th that was named by one of our engineers, uh, and uh, he uh, he was what he was thinking about there was um, the fact that in in aerospace, there's a lot of people call their satellites after birds, but normally birds are prey. So he eagle eye or kestrel swoop kill this whatever I spy that, um, and and we had a humanitarian mission for our satellites, so we thought we would take the piss out of the military and uh, call them doves. Um, uh, so a bit of fun anecdote there. Uh, um, one of the other uh, challenges, and perhaps this is the most important one really, is the sheer engineering, systems engineering complexity of what we've tried to undertake. Um, um, this is not a Yo app. <laughs> Turns out there's quite some differences. Um, in fact, I find the Yo app a mockery on humanity. Um, and I, I think the founder of that company does too, so that's, uh, we're probably in sync there. But... You know, we have probably a thousand features of our inventory and uh, satellite uh, building uh, shop uh, control system that is more complicated than that Yo app, and probably 10,000 features of our mission control system that schedules and deploys and manages all the satellite operations uh, than that freaking Yo app. You know, so it is a mockery of humanity. But anyway, there is a complex system engineering. Uh, thing. We have the satellites, all those components that I mentioned that go in ha have to all work together and have to work together without any human interference right directly. We can't go up there and press the reset button. We're really, once they're launched, they're launched. And so we have to have all these watchdog circuits and all of those components have to work together harmoniously. Then those satellites have to work with each other. Those satellites then all have to communicate with the system of ground stations all around the world. Um, then there has to be a mission control architecture that that um, schedules all those satellites to take pictures or turn to the ground station uh, to coordinate all of that and all the bespoke interfaces to all the different ground stations. And then that's just when we get the data down to the ground. And then we have to have this fairly sophisticated set of uh, um, programs to turn the data into something useful. We have to stitch it to the Earth's surface. So this image comes down with the metadata of 
here's where I was when I took the picture and here's roughly where I was pointing, but it still doesn't give it accurately enough. So then that's sort of plus or minus a tenth of a picture or something. And then we, what we do is we scour the earth for ground control points, sharp peaks of mountains, buildings, roads, things like that, and then find the same thing in each image and then rectify them automatically to the Earth's surface. And doing that whole process, color calibration, atmospheric correction, orthorectification, that means taking account the topography, um, the georectification, that's what I was just talking about, um, cross-calibration between all these satellites, we have this complicated data pipeline. So just the sheer complexity was really, I think, the thing that um, was the biggest challenge and still is the biggest challenge for us um, as, a, as an organization. Uh, and it's sort of tightly related to the goal we took on, um, but it, it is pretty hard. Um, I think finding the right investors, uh, we, we lucked out at many, in many ways, I think. Um, uh, but I think finding the right investors was really key. People that really take the long haul uh, view uh, was really key. And um, yeah, not too prescriptive. I mean, each, each startup needs its own uh, way to go. And, of course, we're, we're disrupting a big sector, and there's uh, worries about how they'll react. Um, so this, again, was that end-to-end -end system. I just want to emphasize the complexity there. Um, so I wanted to say a few things about some of the other aspects of this, not related to our progress, but um, just that I think contextual things uh, that we've learned that I, I thought might be interesting to share. Um, firstly... The question we often thought of at the beginning was, why hasn't anyone done this? And I think it's useful to reflect on that just because it helps you think of what might be good other ideas to pursue. Um, so, and we think that there were sort of three major reasons. One was the technology readiness. So, I mean, we leveraged a lot of technology that people have been spending billions of dollars compressing sensor systems into these devices. And we leverage a lot of that. We don't have phones in our uh, satellites, although we did when we were at NASA put some phones in space. That's another story. Um, uh, we, we, we leveraged a lot of the sensor systems, though. The accelerometers, the rate gyros, the magnetometers, all of that stuff that's been stuffed in here, the little GPS sensors, the little and, and low-power uh, processing uh, arm chips and so forth. So we leveraged a lot of that. And simply, it wouldn't have been possible to do a lot of that uh, technology that's stuffed into that little box uh, five or ten years ago. So that technology maturity was one part. Uh, th that also applies on the cloud compute aspect of this, or the processing of the imagery. You know, ten years ago we'd have had to stand up our huge own server system to deal with all of the imagery, but now we don't. We can just sign up on, on Amazon Web Services. Um, the other thing was the stage in our career. So. For our particular problem of the systems engineering complexity that I just mentioned, um, it was very useful that we had spent a number of years at NASA learning how to build satellites, uh, uh, um, learning how to get launches and the regulatory stuff and the operations and da 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 da. But um, we weren't too far along such that we had bought into all of it. <laughs> um, and, and, and so we questioned a lot of it when we left. In fact, we tore up most of the what's called the NASA gold rules for satellite manufacturing. Um, uh, you know, we don't use clean rooms, we don't use a lot of the processes uh, that NASA use, uses um, because we th didn't think it was relevant. But we did know enough about them to be able to apply the ones that were needed. And so, if, in, in, at least for our particular project, our stage in our careers was kind of about right, which is about 30 years old, FYI. Um, and then there was a need for this, this product, I think. Uh, that was a genuine need for, for what we were delivering at this time I think everyone has an acute awareness of our need to become better at, at stewarding this, this planet in a sustainable way. And, and so there was a strong need when we went out to the marketplace. Um, so uh, Tina asked me to touch on the, uh, my entrepreneurial story. There isn't really much of one, um, but it could be summarized roughly like this, physics, planetary science, planet. Um, so I studied physics, um, did a master's in physics and space science and technology at Leicester University, um, did a PhD in quantum physics actually um, at, at Oxford, um, and then uh, finishing up that stuff at UCSB, uh, which is how I ended up in the States. Um, then I ended up working at NASA for six years on various planetary missions, um, lunar missions and astrophysics missions. Uh, I sent a couple of probes to the moon, one that was looking for water. We slammed a small probe into the south pole of the moon. Um, I was on the science team for that mission, and we, we did, in fact, find lots of water on the moon, which was kind of cool. 
um, because people thought it was dry. Um, it turns out there's a boatload of water. Um, and that's pretty cool for ultimate human exploration because the moon's the obvious place to settle, but having extra volatiles there like water and CO2 and methane, the other things we found, is very useful for, for putting up a self-sustainable settlement there. It makes it much easier. Um, but honestly, uh, we wanted to have more practical applications. That's very nice for science and long-term settlement and backing up the species, if you like. But we wanted to have more practical applications, so we wanted to turn our attention to uh, something a little bit more... Uh, focused on the Earth, and as I mentioned, the founders of the company, we all met at the UM. So, as a little bit about my career, we did put these phones into space. When we turned to, to leave NASA, uh, NASA was very supportive of that. Um, um, we, we hired back some of the people that were into positions that we were going to vacate and, and left, and they were very supportive because it's kind of part of NASA's mandate to spin out technology. So, in this case, that was relatively easy. A bit like leaving Stanford, I'm sure. Um, you, you supported in that sort of thing. So there's not much, really much to say about my entrepreneurial uh, journey, so to speak, um, but, um, let me, but I, I have sketched a few pieces of advice that I thought may be applicable if you guys want to go into, um, into doing something entrepreneurial yourselves. The first thing is to do something meaningful to help the world. I know everyone says that at some level, but I really, really mean it. Like, it's so pointless just going out there to make cash or some other thing. And, and so many people have um, ideas, but you've really got to think about whether or not it's a really good idea <laughs> and, and something that's going to be differentiating over what everyone else is doing. Um, and I, I would really encourage you to wait until you have a very compelling idea. Don't just do an idea as soon as you have an idea. Like, wait until it is one that you think is not a question of whether... I might want to do this. I have to do this. The timing is right. Everything is right. Unless that is in your mind, if you think, ah, it's probably pretty good. It's probably pretty fun. That's not the idea. I, I think you should go away, take a year off, travel around the world, get some inspiration, do something else. Don't start a startup. Because once you start a startup, you're in there for five years, ten years, who knows? Um, uh, and, and you don't want to wake up uh, five or ten years later and find you're doing something completely pointless like a Yo app. Um, and so, like, do something meaningful to help the world. Like, don't, don't at all budge on that constraint, um, is my advice. Uh, I've got some other things. Don't do an MBA. Um, I don't see any uh, advantage to that. Um, uh, in physics, some of the best physicists studied mathematics. Uh, my old supervisor at Oxford has studied mathematics, and a lot of the best uh, physics uh, people had studied mathematics. The best philosophers, I studied philosophy a lot, a lot of the best philosophers didn't study philosophy, they studied history or they studied neuroscience or they studied something but they didn't study philosophy and I think the same is true in business. The best business people didn't study business. They were entrepreneurs in some other technical discipline and then they apply themselves. And you can and should bring in the business experience that you need but that, that's not what you need to get a company going. You need a great idea. Um, and that's not related to business skills. Um, yeah, I think laterally, I think there's a lot of Kool-Aid around Stanford in particular, around, go just do a startup, you know? Like, that's the solution to any problem that you might come up with, you know? I need some popcorn. Do a startup. Okay, right. Um, well, there's lots of other mechanisms, um, you know? Um, and I think it's worth thinking laterally about what one is appropriate. If it really is a company, is it a B Corp or a C Corp? Is it a flexible purpose corporation or what? Um, if it's not, you know, is it a non-profit, is it academia? Where, if you have an idea, where's the best and optimal place to affect that problem, not just default to a startup? Um, so hire people smarter than yourselves, that's, that's, a, that's, that's really good advice that I was given. Do something you love, that sort of relates to number one, I think. Um, Get ready for a wipeout. Um, uh, I liken doing a startup to having children. Not that I've had any, but um, it seems like that. Like the first few years is a wipeout. Um, and that seems like everyone's experience of having kids. Um, have humility. What I mean by that is um, I think it's good to um, wait until you've done something before announcing it. Um, to, uh, don't say, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and it's going to change the world. How about uh, instead do it and then show people what, how it's useful, and then they'll appreciate it so much more, I think. Um, so don't set yourself up for failure. 
Uh, that's the other reason not to do that, but, but I think generally having humility is a good thing. So I, I have a slide um, which relates to raising money. I don't know if any of you guys are interested in raising money. Um, but uh, I call it the 12 Ds of raising dough money because um, um, uh, everyone always asks me about raising money. So I've just put it up here, I set it, but, but I'm just rattle through it. I only talk to the people that are making the decisions. Talk, that is the partners in venture firms. No point talking to anyone else. Um, just don't even take the meeting if it's not the partners that can make the decision. Get the right amount of money. Change the direction just quickly if, uh, uh, if your raise amount is wrong. Change direction. You've got to be adaptable. Uh, test it with someone. That's kind of obvious, a dry run. Be different. Don't turn up with a slide deck. Totally boring. Do something else, whatever it is. Go for a hike with them. We just turned up and put a satellite on their desk and then discussed it. Um, that was it. Um, and we thought that, that turned out to be very compelling. I mean, it, not every startup maybe has satellites, and that's, that's kind of uh, fun, but, but there, there must be something else you can do uh, other than just um, uh, uh, doing a normal slide deck. Avoid the details, uh, be dynamic, adapt to what their interests are. If you're talking to billionaires, they you know, find out what they're interested in in real time and then adapt it. Oh, you're interested in climate change? Oh, our satellites can help with that, you know? Um, use two people. Don't go on their own. It looks weak. Um, use deadlines, random deadlines that work. It's so surprising. <laughs> you're like, literally, one of our founders said to one of the investors, uh, I'm going on holiday uh, um, on Tuesday. Sorry, we, we've got to have a term sheet by then. And they bought it, and they just gave us a term sheet by then. And we were like, that was totally random. <laughs> But you just have to issue these things. People work to deadlines, so you just have to issue deadlines. Not quite, you know, I'm doing my hair, but like, you know, a bit not far off. Um, um, yeah, you've got to do it fast. You've got to, the, the, from the moment you first meet this person, the, the probability of the transaction having goes down 10% a day. Like, you've got to seal it within days. It, either it works like that or not at all. Um, you've got to be confident. And you've got to turn the tables a little bit. You've got to say, what, what are you guys going to do for us? And that immediately puts them in a different reference frame, which is starting to think, oh, well, well, don't worry, we can help you connect with people, and we can help you. And that puts them in the psychological mindset of they're already in. Um, uh, and you don't ever talk to the investors about other investors you're speaking to, because they will talk to each other. Uh, OK, so I wanted to end by coming back to this. Um, our beautiful spaceship Earth. That's what Buckminster Fuller called this. Um, and it's funny, um, sometimes you, you need to go up to understand what's going down, and what I mean by going down, what's going down on the planet. Um, it kind of took us getting off the planet to realize that we are on a spacecraft. It took us putting spacecraft outside the atmosphere to realize that we're already on a spacecraft, and it's called the Earth, um, and it's orbiting the sun, you know, 40 kilometers a second or so. And, um, and that spacecraft, just like any spacecraft, you have to take care of it. If you're in a spacecraft in orbit around the Earth, you have to take care of the CO2. Otherwise, if it gets away, you're fucked. Um, you need to take care of your food systems. You've got to take care of your closed-loop life support systems. Well, recently, I mean, like 1970, recently on geological timescales at least, or evolutionary timescales, we realized that we are on a spaceship ourselves. It's called the Earth, and we've all got to take care of it. Um, and this is where I think that um, uh, we fit in uh, now, uh, which I, is uh, really just my second to last slide, which is I think there's a set now of global sensing companies that are starting to arrive. And that's what I'm, I think of us as, as, a, as a, a company that, that helps set up the sensor systems around the whole Earth so that we can take data of it regularly enough to do something about it. Um, it, it, most of you guys are engineers, and you probably know that in order to um, affect uh, a system, you have to take data about it on faster than the time scale of change of that system, right? So if you're tumbling, you need to take data on how you're tumbling on faster than the time scale of the tumbling. Kind of obvious. Well, with our spaceship Earth, we're not taking data on a fast enough time scale of all the things that we're affecting the planet with. Um, and so if you take imagery, say, once a year of the planet, but deforestation is happening on days and weeks, that's not very useful. By trying to get us data that happens on a daily basis, we hope to get inside that decision-making loop such that we can help us to steer and steward the planet better. But I think we'll be one of many companies doing that kind of thing. 
So I put us in that sort of perspective. Um, and I, I also put us in the perspective of the last point is, uh, you know, about uh, this is the macroscopic challenge of our times, uh, sustainable uh, uh, upkeep of our environment. Um, you know, we've already wiped out a massive fraction of the species on this planet. That's why it's called the sixth major extinction event that we've done in the last sort of 100 years. And we need to do something about that. And this is the macroscopic challenge of our time. And I, I really hope that we as a company fit into that by helping us to get us the data that we need. And just to give a very concrete example, in Nepal, we actually donated all of our imagery of Nepal um, to the uh, aid efforts that were going on over there. And, that's, uh, and, and actually, just uh, a couple of days ago, we heard back that we had found two... Um, uh, basically, there was a crowdsourced campaign to look through our imagery and find where problems had happened, where mudslides had gone on and so forth. And there were two villages that were found, or towns that were found, that that weren't on the maps of all the aid agencies and now are getting a relief effort because of our data. And that's just one example, but that's something that I think uh, is nice um, and really the whole reason why we started the company. In case you guys have any interest in working at Planet, we do have lots of jobs. Um, so, uh, and just to tell you just a tiny bit about ourselves, we're a very open, collaborative culture, uh, about 150 people from top universities. Um, Stanford does currently have the most. We just checked. I just checked before this talk. But MIT is very close, so be warned that you might be being beaten out by MIT soon. Um, anyway, so we, 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 we have a lot of uh, talks. Um, like today, Phil Rosedale, who studied Second Life, came around. Last week, Al Gore came around and talked to us. We have interesting speakers come by and tell us about what they're interested in and how it relates to our data and so forth, and we do cool projects like that Nepal thing was just a, a few people getting together and going, okay, what can we do to help the situation in Nepal? We must be able to do something, and, and did. So if you have any interest in, in joining us, we do have internships uh, this summer and, and in general, and uh, permanent jobs, and just email people at planet.com if you're interested in a job. Um, with that, I'll open it up for any questions. That's great. So we've got time for five minutes, apparently. Yes, in the yellow. Uh, so you, I think it's really cool how you've kind of gotten away from the large-scale, like, big, um, expensive satellites. Uh, you're kind of getting that rapid prototyping and iteration going. Um, yeah. But uh, it seems like that would have ramifications for, like, the lifetime of satellites as well, but maybe you could replace them a lot faster. So what do you see as, like, the lifetime of satellites, especially with electronics and the Moore's Law? You mentioned that. Yeah. This is something that you could get Great question. So essentially, what, what, what happens in the lifetime of the satellite if we take this rapid approach? So we um, uh, put our satellites in. Uh, most of our satellite lifetime is dictated by orbit altitude. And depending on the orbit altitude, they last sort of one to three years. Um, and we, our optimal orbit is around three years because actually by that point, Moore's law has gone on and, and the satellites become obsolete. And other than that, we want to keep them as low as possible to get a good resolution per unit, you know, satellite. <laughs> so, so, um, uh, so that would be our aim. And, and so that's different from the sort of traditional uh, model of trying to get you a satellite lasting 10 or 20 years. Um, next question. Yeah, in the back. Yes, hi. I hate to say this out loud, but I worked on your radio a year ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's so refreshing to see you guys in this space. But what about all these other new technologies, other than just the satellite, the balloons with Google, the drones with Facebook? It would be nice to just see all more different technologies come out other than just that, because the balloons are really, really huge. But yours are really, really small, and it's just, I'm, I'm so excited for you. You're having so much fun. Thank you. And what's, what was the question? The question is, what other technologies are you guys going to dish out other than just the satellite? Got it. Well, the satellites is quite enough for now, um, <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> um, but uh, surely I think we would love to collaborate with people doing drones and and other sorts of satellite systems to integrate the data sets. Um, I think that the, there's a lot of utility in, in merging these data sets from different... I mean, obviously, drones can do much higher resolution imagery, for example, uh, but much, much smaller area. Um, you know, agriculture is 26% of the world's land area. You can't very well cover that with drones. You need a ridiculous number of them, right? But uh, if you have a building site and something's changed, you might want to send a drone in to see it because you want to know brick by brick how many bricks have changed, you know? 
Um, so, so it depends on your use case, but I think they can be very complementary and they should be sort of on the same sort of place. Yes? I have to think that at some point proactively or reactively, the military knocks at your door. Uh -huh. Can you comment at all on the dialogue on that? Yeah. Pluses and minuses and how you go about that? I can. The complete answer is no. <laughs> um, no, yeah, the, of course, um, some uh, branches of the government, the military and the intelligence communities are very interested in our data and, and from lots of different countries. Um, and uh, uh, the way we talk to those guys is they can have our data the same as anyone else on the same sort of terms. Um, and that's, that's uh, uh, but, but yes, uh, you know, a lot of those guys have approached us. Uh, but you know, our main aim is, th is to serve the humanitarian and commercial side. But we do want to be equal, uh, you, you know, uh, give our data to ev everyone that comes to ask. They didn't try to restrict No, they have not tried to restrict the data, no. No, not per se. Yes, over there. Um, modifying on the question earlier, now if miniaturization continues like you've done, mm -hmm. uh, what other applications could you imagine for miniaturized space satellites? Oh, well, so we could, we could go into communication satellites, we could do GPS satellites, we could do uh, radar satellites, there's lots of different things. Um, I think we might be interested in doing that in the long haul, but right now we're sort of laser focused on this Earth imaging mission. Yes, at the back. Um, yes, you. So, very great uh, mission of doing good to the planet, but have you ever thought about uh, like your data can by terrorists, kind of, to compromise Yes, oh, sorry, I forget to repeat the question. The question was, uh, could our data be used in a bad way, for example, by terrorists? Um, absolutely, uh, we thought a great deal about this. Um, we started this company from a do-good uh, position, um, and, and as with any technology, there's good and bad uses of it. Um, the vast majority of the use cases of our imagery are positive, in my opinion having thought through the long list that I could come up with. And it, if that were not the case, I wouldn't be pursuing the technology at all. Um, I think it's really important that we all take responsibility for deciding what technologies to focus on based on their uh, use um, and, and whether it's really a net positive. However, um, yes, there are bad uses of our, our satellite imagery that I'm sure will come, uh, come about. And all I can say is that we will do our best to try and um, restrict the, those negative uses as, as best we can. Other questions? Yes? You brushed over the fact that you can't right now see people, but you also said that more laws yeah. <laughs> relate to you guys. So like, I can clearly see that in 10 years, you guys will be seeing yeah. who's going bald before they know it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, probably not. Uh, let me give you a bit of a, a reason, right? I mean, Fundamentally, our resolution is dictated by the optic size. And even the largest um, satellites that ever gets launched, which are bus-sized satellites costing billions of dollars, like the one you saw, the limit of the size of the optic is limited by the size of the, the rocket that's carrying them. Um, and that's normally four to five meters wide. And even if you take that, you can only get down to sort of 10 centimeter resolution, so 10 centimeter pixels. Well, with 10 centimeter pixels, you can't see someone. So even with those biggest satellites, um, you, you can't really see or identify people. That doesn't mean you can't do some things like track vehicles, right? So it's not like there's zero implications for privacy, but I think it's extraordinarily difficult to get to that sort of level that would be necessary to, to actually um, identify people. Yes? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, well, I thought after contributing to getting rid of space debris, I would contribute some more space debris. Um, so that was why we began the company. No. Um, yeah, so what happens is that, that space debris is a real problem, and there's about 30 million uh, pieces of orbital space debris orbiting the Earth today, man-made debris, um, of which most of which we can't track even. It's too small to track. So it's a real problem, um, and in particular, above about... Um, 800 kilometers, between 8 and 1,200 kilometers is where the main density is, where most people have put their satellites over some of histories. Um, it's got so dense that now the, there's a, a runaway cascade where the collisions between debris and satellites and debris and debris are creating more debris because every time they collide they create lots of little bits. Um, 
then the debris is coming down, such that we're in a runaway cascade in that thing. It's called the Kessel Syndrome. Um, we keep our satellites way below that, like four to 500 kilometers, where there's enough atmospheric drag that it just pulls the satellites down. So the, or the, so the simple answer is that they just come down really quickly, uh, and they can't possibly contribute to this long-term challenge. But we would love, eventually, to, to, to try and mitigate that problem that's up higher altitudes, because if we don't, um, we'll have a serious dilemma on our hands about utilizing space in the long haul. Um, a bit like climate change, the sooner you nip it in the bud, the better. And so when I was at NASA, I was working on schemes to try and do the, the nipping in the bud, if you like. You mean our satellites? Um, well, they, they decay um, in a fairly predictable way based on the, the altitude. Um, and it's sort of the, the atmospheric has an exponential uh, uh, density with altitude. And, and so depending on the altitude we put them at, we know pretty well how long they're going to last. It also depends, of course, which way we're pointed. And I assume they burn up. And they burn up in the upper atmosphere. Right. They don't yeah. fall to Earth. No, they do not fall on people's heads. <laughs> I don't have to worry about uh, one hitting me right. on the head. I okay. am going to guess that all of you found this absolutely inspiring. Please join me in welcoming Robert. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.